This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today on Humans on Rights is a settler of Mennonite and Franco-Manitoban heritage living on Treaty 1 territory. She's a community leader, experienced not-for-profit management professional specializing in human rights education initiatives. And she is currently the executive director of the Manitoba Associations for Rights and Liberties. My guest is Michelle Falk. Michelle, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Michelle, your very first line of uh, your bio states mm-hmm. that you're a settler of Mennonite and Franco-Manitoban heritage living on Treaty 1 territory. Let's unpack mm-hmm. that. Why is that important to you? Yeah, I think it's really important when doing um, land acknowledgements and to, to position yourself on the land. Um, and so talking about my, my heritage and, and where I've, I've come from and how I came to be on, on this territory, I think is really important to, um, to identify my position when it comes to uh, settler-Indigenous relations. And, um, and, and kind of my, my unique perspective in that sense in terms of um, my ancestors and, um, and where I've come from. So, so just explore that a little bit. So mm-hmm. the fact that you are um, identify yourself as a, as a Mennonite, mm-hmm. um, it, it, that obviously is, is, as you said, it's who you are, which is great, but it's important for you to identify that. That's just, yeah. I'd, I'd love to get a sense of the importance to you of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, um, so I grew up in a small town um, just outside the city. I grew up in, in Lorette. And uh, so my, my dad's side of the family is Mennonite and my mom's side is um, Franco-Manitoban. So it was uh, very different experiences going to the different family gatherings. And um, I thought it was at, at the time when I was growing up, I didn't really... Um, find that there was a lot of tension there but as as I got older and I realized that um there was actually um some tension between my my dad's side of the family thinking that my mom wasn't Mennonite enough and then my mom's side of the family so yeah so it's just I I kind of feel like it's a bit of a unique Manitoban perspective to have those two um the fusion of those two cultures in in my upbringing and then to bring that into um, where where I've gone with my life, I've gone on to university. I was the first one in my family who um, was able to attend post secondary and, and get a degree. And so I think that that's a really important part of um, why I do what I do as well. And um, yeah, so so it's important to. Um, position myself in that way because it's so everyone's history is so important to where they are now and where they're going. Um, and, and that's why I like to mention it in, in my bio. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's great. And I appreciate the explanation because I do think, again, as, you know, growing up in a small mm-hmm. community, uh, you're, um, you, you, you know, basically you, you have family gatherings and family gatherings are always senses of, not always, but most likely senses of celebration. Mm-hmm. And to notice that there's a difference, you know, mm-hmm. between, you know, um, sort of one side of the family and the other side of the family, not, not mm-hmm. extraordinary, but mm-hmm. to notice that. Did that have an impact on you uh, early enough that you looked at that and said, you know, do you find one or the other area more um, important or, you know, do you, the fact that you can identify both the importance of those Mm -hmm. elements, is there something there that sort of spoke to you of why the difference was there and how you could celebrate the difference? Yeah, there's there's been different times in my life where I've identified with one side more than the other, but um, but it's always kind of flipped back and forth. So, um, for example, the the Mennonite side is um, the Mennonite people are very are known for being very hardworking um, and um, sometimes frugal, <laughs> and so those are those are little elements in of my upbringing that sometimes as an adult, I, I come back to and like, Oh, that's, that's why I'm, you know, we'll go out of my way to save $20 or, or something like that. But then also the Franco Manitoban side is um, going to events like Festival de Voyageur and speaking French now is, is really important for me and continuing with that. Um, so there's there's those two kind of the clash of of the cultures, mm-hmm. I guess I'll say. But it's it, it's not as significant as you know people who identify as biracial, um, or people who are newcomers to Canada who are um, you know, wrestling ideas of their old culture and their new culture. But um, but yeah, but it's it's still part of uh, my identity and and who I am, and and so. Um, interesting but it is very interesting michelle because mm-hmm. there is i mean a, there's a difference as you just experienced and explained mm-hmm. in culture a difference mm-hmm. the way that you know from the mennonite culture the franco manitoban culture and it's not a matter of you know this is one of the things that we're going to get into we talk about education mm-hmm. part of it is really understanding and appreciating the differences mm-hmm. and celebrating the differences and i think that in so many ways we focus on the differences Mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, separate as opposed to bring together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through your uh, experience in your life, uh, that's what I want to explain or explore, I should say, today Mm -hmm. is your upbringing in those different kinds of cultures that have driven you to education, to understand human rights. And of course, now as the executive director of the Manitoba Association of Rights and Liberties, how early in your life did you sort of get passionate or understand that human rights was something that really interested you mm-hmm. yeah um so it wasn't really something that i was raised around but i do remember um a distinct moment in high school where we were shown a documentary about um i think it was naomi klein's no logo mm-hmm um, and she's exploring ideas of um, corporate cultures and the way that people will pay for a brand rather than a product or a service. And for me, it was a really, um, 
it was a moment that really kind of defined this new horizon that I had never really explored before that you could that you can kind of think past what's being presented to you and think critically about the world around you. So from, from that moment on, I just really had a thirst for knowledge and um, learning about, um, you know, wanting to unpack more of, of the world around me and, and what I've been seeing. And so, um, and so when it was time to apply for university, I was, um, my first year, I kind of just took every course that I, I thought looked interesting because um, I didn't really know where I wanted to go. I didn't have a lot of guidance at that time in my life. And, um, and I decided to pursue politics as a major because uh, the professor that I had in that class was just so engaging. And um, I thought that she just had so many important things to say. And I knew that I, I really wanted to challenge myself to, to pursue that as a major. And so as I went on in, in university, um, I was able to find a really great uh, group of mentors who encouraged me to continue on with, with my studies. Um, and yeah, and I just realized that it's it's really important to me to um, for my work to be meaningful and and to give back to um, the community and to help people who need help the most. Um, because when I was in in university and I had those mentors, they were so instrumental in um, breaking down some barriers that I hadn't even at the time recognized as someone who was the, the first one in my family to go to university. Um, it wasn't until years later where I, I realized that that was actually um, how much of an accomplishment that was. Um, so, yeah, so, so now in my work, I, I like to focus on education and mentorship um, in my work at Marl because I really want to give back and provide those kinds of opportunities to people who were in the same position that I was in at that time. So you're really becoming a mentor to others the way that somebody was so generous to mentor you. Mm -hmm. um, you did your political science here at the University of Winnipeg? Yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah. And any chance at any time, Michelle, did it ever occur to you that you might be interested in politics? Uh, no, <laughs> it's, it's just not. I like to, um, I'm an introvert and I, I like to uh, do my work from outside of the spotlight. So politics is, is not really ever been something that's, that's appealed to me, but um but I love to support the people in my network who are running for politics um, and, and sort of give my expertise to them from behind the scenes and, and lift them up along the way. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, fair comment. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> just because people take political science, I mean, I, you know, it's such mm -hmm. a broad and such a great course in so many ways yeah. It just sometimes that, uh, you know, and again, it's the irony of the word political and science mm -hmm. together from time to time. You wonder, you know, where did that come yeah. from? Right. Um, Michelle, talk a little bit about some of the mentors that you had, specifically maybe give us an example of some of the things that they did that really impacted you, that that mm -hmm. started to get your your path, your journey of learning, particularly around, edu around the education element or specifically around human rights. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest things and maybe, but also one of the smallest things that uh, my mentor did was to just tell me that they believed in me and that they thought that I, I could do it and that I had the capacity to succeed. Um, that was just something that I wasn't used to at that time. And I was filled with so much self-doubt because um because I was the first one in my family to go to university and I couldn't, my family didn't identify with, with that part of, of um, my growth and ambition. And it's through no fault of their own, but it just wasn't their experience. Um, And so just to, to have someone tell me that they thought that I had the capacity and the potential to succeed um, was so transformative for me and being able to um, imagine where my life could go and um, and that my my that I had something positive to contribute um, to to society and to the community um, so yeah so and then again um, with moral I think that it's just those little things when you know, I, we work with practicum students um, from the U of W all the time. And sometimes in our first meeting, they, they come to me and say, well, I don't have any office experience, so I don't really know what I can do to help you. And, and we kind of just sit down and talk about, you know, these are the things that you're good at. This is your perspective that's really valuable. Um, I'll help you to refine those skills. and. And all the the little details of like how to send an email or things that can be taught, but passion and um, and personal experience are things that are inherent, and and so those are the things that are very important. Yeah, and I, I you know, just uh, want to sort of just keep on a, a journey for a second, Michelle, and you did mm-hmm. a master's in gender studies and feminist research from McMaster University. Was there some, um, again, through a mentoring program, did somebody, you know, suggest that to you? Because at that point, you're, you're still doing your poli-sci at the University of Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that was, so there was another course in particular that I took at the U of W. Um, it was called Gender and Global Politics. And that course was also another moment where my worldview was completely blown open. And... <laughs> um, I'm so, this is an aside, but I'm so impressed with um, some high school students that we work with with, through the High School Ethics Bowl because they understand um, concepts like feminism and and patriarchy and and things like that. And, And I didn't discover that until university and it was like such an eye-opener for me so I'm so impressed when when kids Mm. who are in high school are already grappling with those ideas and it's it's not earth-shattering for them um but anyway so I took this course and I I thought it was just so amazing to be able to again to think about the world in a different way and and look underneath the surface um and so then I became really interested in uh feminist political theory. And that's what I specialized in um, for grad school. Um, and at McMaster at the time, we were only the, the second cohort of this, uh, the, the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Feminist, or not Graduate Studies, Gender Studies and Feminist Research. 
Um, and so we were kind of the, the pilot group um, that they to, that helped develop the program and, and help the administrators figure out what exactly they wanted the program to be. So I thought that that was um, a really great experience and I was able to um, to kind of temporarily move away from Winnipeg and live in Hamilton, um, which is a really wonderful city that has a lot of parallels to Winnipeg. So I really enjoyed living there as well and, and kind of getting to know. Um, and then, sorry, and then rethinking that positionality that I talked about at the beginning in a totally different context and environment was also um, something that was eye-opening because it's you can't take for granted where you've come from um, when you're somewhere else that where that perspective is totally unique in a place where um, no one else has that same uh, history that you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me just ask you quickly. So you mentioned the sort of some similarities between Hamilton mm-hmm. and Winnipeg. What just what in your just give me a, an example of what did you say? What would you say is uh, would be a similarity? Yeah, well, it's just a lot of um, like it's a working class uh, city, and um, and there were a lot of similarities in terms of they have. Um, a downtown mall called Jackson Square, which is exactly like Portage Place. Um, and then, and, and what they've been able to do with that space was so eye-opening. And he's like, why don't they just do that with Portage Place? But that's, <laughs> that's an aside. That's your political science coming yeah. out of you. That's exactly <laughs> but uh, yeah, and it, but it was really cool too how... Um, it was only a, a bus ride away from Toronto. And so it was really easy to just hop on a bus and, and go to the, the biggest city in, in Canada. And um, the way that the public infrastructure worked there was, mm. uh, was really cool. And, um, and, and also the artist community in Hamilton was, was so amazing because it was a, you know, it was a steel town and then the steel factory shut down. So then there was a lot of um, poverty and people who were out of work. Um, but then the city kind of rallied around the the artist community and they built a, a strip of art galleries. And once a month they would have a, an art crawl where every, the galleries would open their doors and you could go and visit and see all these art. And, and then they would have uh, musicians play in the street and it was just this really wonderful um, community gathering that happened on a regular basis that was was really exciting and it there was it was all free and open to the community so um, I, I thought it was yeah it was a great city yeah it well is. yeah, yeah <laughs> and and and, 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 and I, I love the description I love the way mm-hmm. you, you bring it together and 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 then for you Michelle to come from Lorette, mm-hmm. you know, not sure about, you know, post-secondary education at all. Um, take that at the University of Winnipeg and then find yourself in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite a journey, you know, for somebody who wasn't sure that what was going to happen to them after grade 12. 
Mm-hmm. Follow the journey from McMaster in Hamilton that brings you back to Winnipeg. What when you graduated from mm-hmm. uh, McMaster in? I'm just looking at your master's in gender studies and feminist mm-hmm. research at McMaster. Mm-hmm. What what was next for you? Yeah. So um, so after I finished grad school, I um, ended up moving to Toronto. Um, there was a a house in Toronto that was, um, it was like a a Winnipeg house (laughs) and they, someone was moving out and they needed someone to move in. So I, I just decided to move to Toronto, um, because I was applying for jobs and all the jobs were in Toronto anyway. Um, and I ended up working at a market research firm in Toronto. Um, and just it, that experience just really hit home how important it is for, for me personally with my personal values to work somewhere um, that matches those values and, and to do work that has meaning in the community. Um, and it, it, was, it was just really difficult to, to wrap my head around um, doing work that I, I didn't think was important in, in terms of um, helping people and um, giving people opportunities. And um, uh, yeah. And so I ended up um, coming back to Winnipeg after working there for a few years um, because um, just a temporary opportunity at the United Way came up and, um, and I was like, I really need to come back to, to my roots and take everything that I learned in grad school and the, the work experience that I've been able to build in Toronto and really give back to the community here in Winnipeg. So I was able to, um, work with the United Way on their fundraising campaign for a few months and um and just was really invigorated by the way that the whole community comes together to raise millions of dollars mm. for the united way so that they can distribute that money to um agencies and um yeah so so that was really eye-opening for me and it really kind of hit home that i made the right decision and that i was I was uh, where I needed to be at that time. Did you always see yourself coming back to Winnipeg? I mean, this this opportunity at the United Way uh-huh. obviously surfaced, but were you kind of one kind of having a look uh, kind of east or west, I should say, apologize, west to Winnipeg? Uh-huh. Were you always kind of looking to see when I might be able to jump back into that community? Yeah, it wasn't really, at that time, I don't think I really had a long-term plan, to be honest. I was just kind of like, I knowing what I was good at and what I wanted to do and just, and, you know, being at the time of my life where I had the flexibility of, of just being able to pursue opportunities as they came up, um, which, and, and then going for it <laughs> when, when these opportunities did come up. So that's kind of, um how i how i approached that that moment but mm-hmm. uh and then you know and then i also um 
met my my current husband um, around that time, and so I was thinking about um, those kinds of relationships at, at that moment as well. Yeah. And so, yeah. and that was in Winnipeg, and so it gave you an opportunity to think about roots, maybe here. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Michelle, I, what I I I think is incredible about um, about what you have done personally and what you've been able to achieve and accomplish, and sort of some of the experiences you've had. When you think about the marketing, first and foremost, I want to say just you got to keep the dots going from Lorette to Winnipeg to Hamilton mm-hmm. to Toronto. So now, you know, you've really, you've, you've really sort of gone from a small community. I'm very familiar with Lorette up into the biggest city in, the, in, in Canada. Um, uh, so that's pretty amazing. Um, that's really amazing. But, you know, just to come back for a minute, this, you find yourself in a position where you're working at a marketing company and, you know, every company has its level of interest and excitement mm-hmm. when you first start. But as you start to settle in and realize, you know, like oh, I, I always think of things that sometimes when somebody says, you know, what do you want to do? And sometimes people say, well, I'm not sure what I want to do, but mm-hmm. it's equally as important to understand what you don't want to do. Yeah. And in this case, you were in a situation where you realized that it wasn't something that was going to be a career path that you wanted to follow on. Mm-hmm. But I, I just want to pause because I know you're so passionate about human rights. And you think about people who don't have the option. They have to have, I mean, they have to have food. They need money for food. They need money for rent or whatever it may be. And they're not necessarily in a position where they can pivot to something you know, I think you bring those elements into your current position as executive director at the Manitoba Association of Rights and Liberties, or MARL, mm-hmm. as it's called. Yeah. And so I think, you know, you, you, you would be, your experience there, your personal lived experience would be such a great experience to share with all of those people that are around. And I, I want to get a little bit of sense about why, why you think the Manitoba Association of Rights and Liberties, and I won't say that word Again, I'll refer to moral, as <laughs> yes. everybody knows about it. But mm-hmm. what what drew you to moral? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's interesting you mentioned that because when I say that I ended up um, working somewhere where there was a values misalignment, it, it was because of um, you know I was living in Toronto, which is a really expensive city, and I I had just finished school and um, I, I needed a job. I needed to be able to pay the rent. And there was a period of a couple months that was a really dark time where I wasn't eating as much as I should have um, because I was, I decided that paying rent was more important and I didn't have enough money for both food and rent. And um so, so when I'm, when I'm talking about like, oh, I'm just grabbing these opportunities wherever I can, it's because I was in a situation where I, I was, I didn't have the flexibility and the privilege of um, being able to choose at that time. Um, so when you mentioned that, it, it just reminded me of, um, you know, kind of, the deeper reasons behind making those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. But, um, but working at Marl, I thought was the, one of the first opportunities that I had to be able to um, accept a job with, with intention. Um, so it was, it was the first job in all of these that, that um, I applied to because I was, interested in the in the mission 
And I thought that it was a great fit for, um, you know, the things that I studied because I was interested in, in exploring those deeper ideas. And, um, and Marl also represented being able to um, help and provide services to those people who, who were struggling and found themselves in um, economically disadvantaged uh, situations. And, um, and, and even thinking back to, to myself when I was in those dark times, I would have really benefited from having that kind of resource of, you know, this is where you can turn to, these are your rights. Um, these are the resources that are available to you. And so, yeah, so wanting to, to build, um, a, resources in a community that can help people that, that are, um, and that were in situations similar to the one that I had found myself in. But, um, yeah, so, so that was, um, and, and Marl at that time was, um, a much smaller organization than it is now. And, and that was six years ago. Um, so when I first started, I was the only, I was the only staff person there and I was kind of sitting in this office by myself wondering, what do I do? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so I, one of the first things that I did was just really assess what is Marl doing and, and what is, what is Marl the best at doing and where can we fill a gap in the community? So a lot of that was just, um, really focusing in on the the parts of our work that um, maybe that I felt personally were the most significant and that addressed um, those crucial issues that I didn't see anyone else in the community addressing at that time. And that was the education element of it. Um, and, and so by really focusing in on that mission and, and redefining the, the, um, the vision of the organization, I was able to um, secure funding to hire on more people and, and build a team in support of, of those goals. Um, so, so that's where we are today. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's talk just a little bit about when you talk about the education mm-hmm. Um I mean, your words, Michelle, but are you the education of human rights? Or is that what you were sort of looking at as uh, I don't, this has to be yeah. in your words, not my words, but mm-hmm. that kind of what you were looking at? Yeah, thanks. And, um, and, yeah. So just to, let's explain a little bit about what the importance of, of education of human mm-hmm. rights means to you. Yeah. Um, so I really firmly believe that human rights education is the key to um, addressing inequalities that are long-term and systemic. Um, it's, it's these misunderstandings and prejudices that, that kind of are at the root of discrimination and, and racism and oppression. Um, and so we approach our work in a couple different ways. So, so one is to... Um, talk to kids in schools and in the community about, um, you know, what is privilege? What is racism? Like, how do you, how can you really understand where 
you've come from and, and how your experience informs your perspective and how it's different from the perspective of other people in your community that don't have um, that same background. And, and for younger kids, um, you know, sometimes you do that in more abstract ways by talking about like, you know, some animals swim and some animals fly and you can't ask a, a, you know, a snake to fly. And I don't know, but I'm, I'm not the one who develops the programs, but (laughs) I I understand your, 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 what you're, what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there's, there's that element of it, but then there's also the element of uh, people in the community who are, are vulnerable to human rights discrimination and giving them information that they need to be able to advocate for themselves and, um, and self-empowerment. Um, so, uh, so just recently we're um, going to a um, newcomer organization to talk to them about what rights they have when they're dealing with the police. Um, what to do if if they're in um, in a situation where they feel like um, uh, like they're being discriminated against um, by someone in that position. So um, so there's different types of, of workshops that we offer to the community and um, in different levels of understanding human rights and providing those elements of education. Yeah, so one of the great things, and I want to talk a bit about um, uh, the, the uh, kind of the comment about the difference between diversity training, how it's shaped, how it's changed, how it's grown. Um, but I, 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 I come back to your comment, Michelle, about you know with newcomers and and spending time with them to understand what their what their rights are, and I know that. I went to um, a citizenship uh, ceremony mm-hmm. and you know, I, I think, you know, all Canadians, whether they were born in the soil or not, should attend or be a part of one because you start to realize how, how incredibly um, overcome people that have had, you know, come from countries of suppression and all sorts of, you know, horrific things that we don't think about. I mean, we've got our challenges in Canada, mm-hmm. but, but the point is, is when they get a sense that, that, you know, when you ask them questions about why did you come to Canada, I mean, it 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 pulls on your heartstrings. They're passionate about what they see in this country and the hope and the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And yet, there's also an understanding of, from your perspective, of ensuring that they understand what their rights are. Yeah. Do Do you find that over the your time as overseeing uh, moral has that shifted and changed? And if so, how has it? What's been the biggest impact? Um, yeah, well, so Marl is really focused on, uh, local human rights issues. Um, something that we see a lot with, um, with high school students, um, especially those who, uh, have grown up in more privileged neighborhoods is they are usually thinking about human rights in terms of, um, poverty overseas, um, and, and so we really want these kids in particular to start thinking about um, people in their own community who are experiencing poverty and, um, 
and really localize human rights in terms of, um, you know, it's, you can have a much bigger impact um, in, in helping someone who's, who lives right across the street from you. Um, and, and so that's kind of our, our focus. Um, and sorry, I lost track of the. Yeah. Yeah. We were question. just talking about the, 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 I think you were just saying that, that you've got your um, human rights in the workplace program that you've been mm-hmm. looking at working at. And, so you start to develop that and it's really sort of the, the difference. It's how, how is that different than say diversity training? And we're, we're really pivoting now to talk a bit more about, you know, the workplace versus sort of new Canadians, but this is all part of the education that moral yeah. does and all part of your leadership and how you yeah. have pushed that as a, as a part of the focus and the vision for moral. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I'd love you to sort of, um, dive into a bit and explain that. Sure. Um, yeah. So in the last, uh, in the last year or so, we've really, um, not necessarily a pivot, but, but an expansion of our programming, um, in that we've, we're focusing more on, um, workplace anti-racism and anti-oppression, anti-oppression training. Um, And the reason why we're doing that is because uh, there's been a lot more attention lately on the way that um, these sort of ingrained um, assumptions and and misunderstandings that, um, you know, when I talk about going into schools to address those at a young age, it's just, it's, it's people who didn't have those opportunities and have gone their whole lives um, with, internalizing um, discrimination and are now in the workplace and are experiencing these things at um, on their, in their day-to-day lives. Cause workplaces are often just a, you know, it's a microcosm of society. And so you have people who are in positions of power and then you have the people who are um, working for organizations. And a lot of the time there's, there's a lot of concerns that are going on and people don't feel empowered to speak up and, and share their experiences. So, um, so we want to be able to provide that kind of third party perspective to come in and really advocate for um, people in the workplace who are experiencing discrimination. And the, the central focus of our um, anti-racism and uh, anti-oppression training in workplaces that I think is different than um, kind of regular remedial diversity training is that we really want to give justice to those people who had experienced um, discrimination. And how we do that is by really asking tough questions. Um, and realizing that growth comes from a place of discomfort and being and embracing that and not shying away from it. And then also working closely with leadership um, and, and people who are in those decision-making positions to, to, to think about their own experiences and their own 
positionality when it comes to um, uh, discrimination. Um, and, and, you know, cause change has to come from within, um, and having a group come in and do a one hour workshop and then leave, isn't going to change anything. So that's, that's where we come from. And we want, we want it to be the start of a, an ongoing deeper conversation and rethinking power structures and, and rethinking, um, management strategies that and and allowing um empowering people to to speak up and to to share their thoughts and um and to feel safe doing so as well yeah and i think it's uh it's all the things you've just touched on are are Mm -hmm. extremely important and you know there's always a sense that organizations when faced with you know, an internal crisis or an issue, whether it's uh, on um, discrimination or sexual harassment or whatever it may be, that there's a, a, a sense that, well, we better reach out and do something, as you said. So, you know, maybe in, in other times and maybe today still, but not what moral does, you do something different. But the notion that you could do a one or a two hour session mm-hmm. and then everybody packs up their books and leaves the room and somebody in senior management potentially could sort of say, well, okay, now we've done that. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're saying is Marla's response is that is, that is one rung of a very long ladder that we need to keep moving ahead and keep climbing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very attractive for um, the people in positions of leadership to sometimes invite uh, groups to do um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training, just as a way to rectify some some bad PR that they've had. Um, and so we don't want to to be kind of a box to check on um, as far as public persona goes. And, and we really want to encourage deeper, long term change. Um, within organizations. And so one of the biggest differences between workplace anti-racism training and, um, and the, the training and education programs that we have in schools and in the communities is that there's um, definitely different motivations that, that people have. So in, in schools and in the communities, people are so eager to learn and, and they absorb the new information um, like sponges and, and they're so keen and, and they want to be inspired. And then workplaces, um, oftentimes there's just a lot more pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a whole other conversation to break down those barriers and to encourage people to be okay with, with discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, which is a challenge. And I, yeah. I want to come back to something when you talk about sort of the, you know, younger kids, your, your, your experience in terms of being sponges. I know that something that Marl is very, very proud of and is getting mm-hmm. national recognition is the high school ethics bowl. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what does that mean to you? Yeah, I love the high school ethics bowl. It's such an amazing program to be a part of. Um, because it's so just to give a little bit of context, the high school ethics bowl is 
similar to a debate, but different in a, in a few key ways. So we're encouraging um, collaborative dialogue, whereas a debate is, you know, one team is one side and the other one is the opposing side and they argue. But the high school ethics bowl is about um, one team presents information that they found on a particular topic. Um, so it could be something like, um, you know, should governments spend money on space exploration when there are uh, people struggling with poverty? Um, you know, something like that, that it could right. be a, a multifaceted For question. Sure. Um, and so the team will will present their argument and say, we think that they should because um, space exploration is important for innovation or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the the opposing team, instead of saying you're wrong and this is why, they're encouraged to to think more along the lines of that's a really interesting point. Have you considered some of these um, this other research that we found? And, and here are some ways that you can build on your argument. And then the other team will respond and say, oh, that's so great. Thank you for that. This is, how, this is our response to the questions that you just asked. Right. And, and they're sort of scored on, um, ha on their encouragement, basically, of the other team and, and whether or not they were in, able to engage in collaborative dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's really great. And, and teachers are, are always so, um, enthusiastic and encouraging in, in coaching their teams to do this because it's not only the event itself, it's building up, um, the, the research and the thinking that goes into preparing for the event is, um, is a really great way to, um, help kids learn those skills. and then we often get feedback from the, the people who participated in the program that they were really shy and they didn't think that what they had to say was important, but they were able to participate in this event. And, and now they're, they're confident that, um, that what they had to say was important and they didn't know that they could, um, ask these kinds of critical questions in that way. And so it develops leadership skills and, um, and critical thinking skills. And very often we have, we have kids who come back after they've graduated high school and they want to volunteer for the event because it's something that's stuck out in their minds. And um, our current communications coordinator at Marl um, actually was a former high school ethics pool participant as well. And, and so, um, and so she has personal experience with that. And so, yeah, so I just think it's an incredible um, program that has such a, a huge impact on, um, on kids and, and like really creating a new generation of leaders um, in, in Winnipeg and now nationally. Mm -hmm. Well, what I, I, I admire about it, Michelle, is that today it's so difficult to, to get ideas as part of a conversation because mm -hmm. people, rather than debating an idea, they tend to attack the individual, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so what you're doing is moving it away from that 
so that it becomes much more of a, a debate around an idea and, mm-hmm. and how can we look at these ideas? And I, and I think it's fantastic. And again, you know, kudos to you for, uh, and Marl for getting some national recognition. You know, I, I, I know it's not why you created it. It's just that good ideas tend to draw attention. And so you're, you're doing that. And I think it's fantastic. And I, I, I just, as you're, I'm listening to you and I wonder how many other people that are involved in this are kind of the Lorette to Winnipeg, to Hamilton, to Toronto experience that, <laughs> that you've had. So, um, hey, listen, I, um, I, I've really enjoyed this. I, I would love to just get a sense from you, Michelle. I know you're an avid reader. And one of the things I like to do is to see if there's a chance to um, have you share some books. And I know that you could go on for quite a while because I know that how much you love reading. But I just wondered if there were a couple of books that you might recommend to anybody who's listening and we'll, we'll post it up on our website that mm-hmm. might be reference books or people or books that you would sort of say, these books really touched me and I, I would highly recommend them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so the first one that um, I enjoyed reading lately that I think um, had was really eye-opening for me is uh, Seven Fallen Feathers written by Tanya uh, Telaga. Um, so it's a story about um, uh, people, indigenous people in Thunder Bay who um, had experienced violence, racialized violence. Um, and it's really eye-opening. And I think particularly there's so many parallels between um, indigenous peoples in Winnipeg and, and in Thunder Bay. Um, and so that's one that I would really recommend people, uh, uh, people check out. Um, and, um, sort of another book that, that I've been reading lately is, um, called Feminists Among Us. Um, and that's a compilation, um, with an editor, but the different chapters are just about, um, feminist leadership and how that's different than traditional leadership in terms of, um, leading collaboratively and emphasizing democratic decision-making. And um, when we talk about the Human Rights in the Workplace series, um, I really feel that it's breaking down those assumptions of, of leadership um, is so important to, um, to breaking down those, those barriers in terms of uh, people who might be experiencing discrimination in the workplace and and having a more collaborative and and transparent work environment is so important um, to uh, giving justice back to, to those people. Yeah. And I, I, you know, um, the way you described uh, both these books, uh, they're right in your wheelhouse of who you are, um, how you've come around to be the kind of person that you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, uh, I, I want to say, Michelle, um, it's been, I've t- we've chatted offline a few times. Uh, this conversation has mm-hmm. been um, fantastic. It's been enlightening. It's a, a great opportunity for um, anybody that's listening to understand how fortunate this 
community is to have somebody with your passion and your leadership running an organization like Marl, making a difference at a local level, at all levels of our of our community, whether it's uh, new Canadians or students or um, all of the elements. I know that uh, I'm involved in anti-racism week um, as a, are you and Marl, and you're going to be leading a number of, uh, uh, facilitating a number of discussions. And again, just showing how you're involved in the community. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for the time, and and I, I I thank you very much for the the great work that you are leading and the difference that you're making. <clears throat> and I would just say that we are um, Winnipeg is a is, is and will continue to be a stronger community because we have people in 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 leadership roles dealing with human rights like you. So Michelle Falk, thank you very very much. Thank you. It's an honor to be invited. Thanks so much. We'll talk again, I know. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.